0: So i got to tell us. i got a short message. I'm not doing a message on freedom today because I'm exhausted with all of that. If you do uh, eight messages on freedom, it's like plowing concrete. <laughs> really, it is. You go home and you go like, oh, man. So I have, a, I, I have this message I've been wanting to do for a long time. I'm going to do it in a minute. It's not that long, but I'm going to tell you a story. All right, so most of you all know that we got a horse. I announced that last week. In a moment of total insanity, we bought a horse. If it, that wasn't insane enough, we're going to look for another one because they're social animals. <laughs> so we're out and we're looking for um, a saddle for our horse. And uh, we drive to Dillsboro, North Carolina. For those of you watching, it's about, uh, it's an hour. It's past Silva, You know where Dillsboro is. And we find this tax shop so we pull in, and, and Angie says, um, Honey, would you pull in the shade, you know, because of the dog. It's, it's not real hot, but it's not cool either. So we put the windows down like we always do, about four or five inches, something like that. And we go in, and we start looking at saddles. This is a prayer request, by the way, saddles. <laughs> well, this is, Lord, this is great. I'm just enjoying it all. So... Um, We're looking at saddles. We can't quite land on anything. We've been in there a while now. I mean, we've been in there a good while. Now, you also know uh, that we bought a horse, but I've also told you, you know, I'm not really fond of Angie's dog. (laughs) And those of you who know me well know I can't stand the dog. (laughs) But I would never say that publicly. It's too harsh. (laughs) The dog was abused and uh, okay. I I have to tell myself that often. So we get back in the car. We're going to leave. It's almost five o'clock. It's almost closing time for the old tack shop, which is about a five-acre facility. And not only do they sell saddles and tack, it's a nursery. They sell pine straw, wheat straw, plants of all sizes. This is a, a massive place. It's right on 441 Major Highway, and there's a, Big creek between the tax shop and the highway with big, almost white river type stuff. So we get in the car and we're backing up, and it dawns on us that the dog's not in the car. (laughs) I immediately thought, I mean, Surely, to God, nobody would take that dog. <laughs> this is what I'm saying to myself. My wife, oh, bless her heart, is distraught. She's in tears. We're, we're flabbergasted. We have 10 minutes before they close and shut the gate and lock it. I'm, do you know what, I don't use this word often, bifurcated, bifurcated. In other words, I'm split right down the middle. <laughs> she knows I'm split down the middle. I know. God knows. And now you know. I'm split down the middle. Part of me is going, after the grieving process, I think it's going to be okay. We'll rebound. Peace and quiet. The other part of me is going, buddy, you better get the looking. <laughs> so... I'm up, I'm in between semi-trucks full of pine straw. I'm looking under buildings, under bushes. I'm looking in the back 40. I'm, I'm looking through every row of plants, every greenhouse, everything. that's Any place that this dog could hide because it's, I know this dog's scared to death. I know it is. So she in between sobbing is calling out, Olive, Olive. It's getting drowned out by the semis on the highway that I'm now concerned about. Now the manager's involved. The customers at the nursery have now left after closing time. They're driving around the neighborhoods in their car. Everyone's looking for Olive. The employees. I'm stopping cars 400 yards away from the place, stopping them, and I'm realizing, I'm asking if they saw a little gray terrier. And they go, well, we work there. We're all looking. It's like um, a skirmish line and Dateline. Everyone's looking for something in the fields. I can't we can't find her anyway. Nowhere can we find this dog. So I said, all right, I gotta go over to the creek. The rushing creek. And I look up one side upstream and I look down the other. I walk and the weeds are up to here. You can't see anything. And I'm like, God, this is terrible. I go, God, where is this dog? Where is this dog? Then I gotta go look on the highway. Oh, I'm dreading this part. I look north, I look south, nothing happening there, no remains or anything. I check back every once in a while, my wife is upset. There's exchanging (laughs) pictures, from what I understand, the dog's on Facebook by this time. (laughs) Yeah. There was a guy across, over at a Baptist church, cutting the grass. I know he's been there an hour and a half of the two hours we've been there, So I wanna make my way over there and see if he saw her. We can't find, so I go, well. The manager says, well, you can park here, stay here tonight if you want, and just park and see if she comes back. And I'm thinking to myself, man. In God's house, I'm thinking, well, the Georgia game's on at (laughs) 3.30. But I'm really, really feeling bad for my wife. I really, genuinely am feeling bad, really bad. So we get across the street. (laughs) And it's not looking good. And I'm starting to have, you know how they have those movies like The Incredible Journey where Chance, the Little Dog, makes it way back home with this incredible sense of smell and whatever. That's, that's how desperate I am in thinking about how we're. So I, I asked this old, this old guy, I said, you know, my wife's pretty tore up. you seen this dog? He goes, no. Oh, my gosh. I said, well, if you find her, you know the te- could you let these people know? He goes, Sure. I get back in the car, and my wife is on the phone, and she's crying. The dog is safe. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Dog is safe. I'm back to one and now. I'm, I'm, I'm back to one. I'm back to one. I have no, I'm not double-minded now. I'm back to one. All right, good, good. That's great. Um. One of our vocalists, Lauren, lives in an apartment under our house, and she says, Yeah, she's safe. She's just trying to get up on the deck of the house. And I, for about two seconds, I saw this little uh, terrier running through cashers, winding through, smelling, making her way up past old Edwards, getting to Buck Creek, and then getting to our house. And I go, Heck no, that dog didn't do that. The dog was never in the car. <laughs> Never was that dog in the car. I am sweating bullets. I'm back to two again. Oh, the dog was never in the car. When I first moved here, everybody's going, "Oh, who's the pastor going to be at CBC? They haven't had a pastor in so long." Oh, I hope he's pro-family. Those are things. So I went to Ingalls one night with my wife and my daughter, Abigail, and we're out shopping and we come out, it's dark. We're in this, engaged in this intense conversation of something, I don't know what. I got in the car and went home. Only, I only lived two miles from there at the time. And we get home and get out of the car and realize, where's Abigail? <laughs> I just got in the car and took off. She was standing in the parking lot. So one of the families here in the church saw her standing out there destitute. (laughs) Asked her what she was doing, and thank God she was not she was old enough not to cry about it. Well, they got her in the car, and I'm about to go to Ingalls and get Abigail, hopefully. And they come pulling up in the driveway to meet the new pastor who's really pro family. (laughs) Oh my gosh. There's no point to the story <laughs> other than it's a good idea, if you're going anywhere, know who's in the car with you. <laughs> we had a pastor at Mount Perrin one time. He was, he was in charge of all the singles. And over this situation, he almost became single. It's about 1.30. He's watching the Falcons game. And the nursery calls and says, uh, John, Pastor John, and, you going to pick up your son? What do you mean, pick up? Oh, my gosh, his wife went out of town. He didn't pick up his son from the third grade. His son's over there. It's horrible. See what you do to these people in the minister. Anyway, clutch those in your family. Hug them before you abandon them. The dog was never, never in the vehicle. All right, I got a little video I want to show you today. Um, And I hope you enjoy it. So let's roll that, guys, in media. So,
1: um, me and my wife were looking at some old home videos recently of our youngest daughter being born. I'm going to show you the video. Not her being born, because my wife would be like, You doing what? We got some conflict we need to talk about. So, it's a video of our youngest daughter being born. I took this video. The video you're about to watch is a video I took, but I didn't understand the power of it until I watched the video. So let me set it up for you. She's like two and a half minutes old. Our daughter's two and a half minutes old at the time. And um, they got her under that little chicken warmer at the hospital, the little thing to keep the french fries warm. I don't know what kind of insurance we have, but that's what they got her under. And the nurse is about to clean her up and she starts to cry. I want you to notice what happens when she hears my voice. Look, I'm right here. It's okay. It's okay. I'm right here. I'm right here. We're doing just fine. It's okay. It's okay. I'm right here. I'm right here. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay, baby. Yo, so that was pretty powerful, right? Now, now it's like seven, seven and a half minutes or so later. The nurse is done cleaning her up, and she starts to cry again. I speak up, and she stops crying again. But I want you to notice what happens when I tell her I love her.
0: Okay, Portland.
1: Like, Portland. It's okay. it's okay. It's good. It's good. It's good. I'm right here. I'm right here. I am right here. I love you. I love you. I love you. Yeah, I'm right here. I'm right here. It's okay. It's okay. So here's the thing. There's going to be times in life where it feels like you're going from conflict to conflict to conflict or maybe you're just full of fear because of all the uncertainties right now the key thing to do in those moments is to be still and listen for the father's voice be still and listen for the father's voice because he is talking to you and what he wants you to know is that he's right here he loves you all you have to do is open your eyes So, uh.
0: some things uh, have happened in my life in recent weeks, Um, and almost everything that happens in my life has something to do with people in this room, so (laughs) that's not unusual, and that's not a complaint. It's that I learn things um, by meeting with and talking with and trying to understand people and uh, as of late, I just finished uh, with the help of Mike, Dr. Mike Armstead here. You and I did, I don't know, six, maybe seven recording sessions, I don't know, on apologetics. And um, this man is a wealth of information. You'll find, you'll find these videos to be quite um, beneficial to you, I'm sure, in, in a very short period of time. But there's been um, a lot of emphasis in my life lately about defending the faith, justifying why we believe what we believe, um, giving a defense, hopefully with gentleness and respect, First Peter 3 and 15, and uh, trying to understand, as I prepare for October, uh, an emphasis on evangelism. And I, at the same time, I'm trying to understand my, my own walk, frankly. My own walk is uh, the Lord has taken me back to the beginning. And He showed me some things He's never showed me before about how to move forward in a relationship with Him. So there's been a lot of um, answers provided for questions asked of by people. And um, something that I observe about our faith, about Christianity, is that it's grossly misunderstood by our culture and to to a large extent I also want to add that I think in many respects it's not totally understood by the church and for that reason I kind of wanted to put this message together to sort of address some of these things Um, and I want to use an illustration I've used for years but I've never really unpacked it I've never really got deep into this illustration. So the illustration I'm sure is familiar to you, but I want you to listen for what the Lord might be saying to you personally in your walk right now. Okay, is that fair? Um, I had lunch the other day with this wonderful man I met just a few weeks ago here at the altar. and, And he admittedly has some questions about Christianity. He may be here today, I don't know. So we spent a good deal of time answering questions, Um, apologetics, really. Um, Science, physics, stars, creation of universe. I mean, all of it, we've covered it all. Historicity of Christ, the reliability of the New Testament, messianic prophecies. I mean, quite an extensive conversation. But it's what I said at the very end that I think bears repeating because I found myself not feeling comfortable about giving someone all the answers. There was something not good about that. As much as you would think to give someone the answers and hope that they believed, there was something wrong with that to me. And I finally shared that with them and I hope to make that point here appropriately today. And it started with this game of tennis. I am not a tennis player. Um, I've played before, but it wouldn't take you long to figure out I'm not a tennis player but I'll use it as an example. To understand the game of tennis, you can understand the history of tennis. That's a good starting point. Not unlike you would hear or study the history of um, Dr. Naismith in the inception of basketball or football or how did, how did that start? What was the genesis of that sport? Okay. Or like golf over in Scotland, what was the genesis of that situation? Where did it start? Well, if you want to look at tennis, it started out as a, it's a racket sport traditionally named lawn tennis. It started out on grass in uh, Egbaston, Birmingham, England, way back in 1882, August 1st of 82, 1882. It was commonly known as tennis and it was taken up by the Royals and then tennis clubs started to pop up and um, it became very popular. And, and is the case when you start a new sport, a new activity, um, not only do you understand its history, but you understand that it has an organization round about it. It's organized. There's a, an association or a rules committee or someone who, who protects the game or provides rules and regulations for the consistency of the play of the game, even internationally. So if you were to play tennis anywhere, the, the rules would be the same pretty much. The scorekeeping would be the same. It gives a continuity to it. The organization gives a continuity to the game. Uh, just like if you ate at a, at a franchise restaurant, every time you ate there, you'd want to expect the same consistency of the food you ate the last time you were there, even though it was in a different state at a different time. The methodology is the same. The rules, the regulations are the same. And the court is the same. So you could study tennis and try to become a tennis player by its history, its organization, its rules and regulations, and then you could know that in a singles court, there's 2,106 square feet, and in a doubles court, there's 2,808. The service box is 13 and a half wide and 21 deep. You can start to understand that anywhere you play tennis in the world, you're gonna have the same court. I bet some of you have actually gone through this with uh, croquet. You've probably thought, well, i got to learn something of the game if I'm going to go out and buy a $100, you know, white pair of pants and white shirt. And rightly so. You should research. So tennis has its rules, its regulations. You would probably want to buy a good racket. And then you'd have to do some study on the actual tension of the racket, you know, if you're going to get out there and play. And let's say that you decided you want to become really, really good. Let's say you're really crazy. And you decide, I want to be a Wimbledon champion. Now, that is crazy. But nonetheless, have you ever seen King Richard about Serena and Venus Williams, that movie? Wow, the dedication needed to play at that level is incredible. So you got the rules, you got the regulations, you know the court, fine. Um, You study great players, McEnroe, Bjorn, Bjorn Borg, or whoever you wanna study. And then you go out on the court and you start to play. And boy, do you stink. <laughs> Just knowing about the game doesn't ensure you that you know how to play. It doesn't ensure you have the physical ability. It does not ensure you that maybe you know what to do, but it doesn't mean you know how to do it. You're really, frankly, inept. You're as far, you're further away now from being a Wimbledon champion than you actually thought you were you're just more dangerous. You know, you know more, but you can't do anything. So what do you do? You go out and you get a coach. Get a good one too, a patient one. And yes, you have some athletic ability. And yes, you have, you're adept at certain things. And yes, you can move about and do what, you know, you've learned some things over the years. The coach will take that ability and he'll do whatever she, he or she can do with it to maximize it, to bring you closer to your potential. And that, along with the rules and regulations, aren't going to hurt you in the least bit. You can go out and you can play tennis. You might even win a few games. You might win a few sets. And who knows? You might actually win in some Alta community league some sort of tournament. Sets and matches, whatever. That's certainly possible. Then you start to realize, hey, I need to study the game a little bit more. Like, I need to know how effective a lob can be, or a smash, I need to work on my serve. Then maybe you start to say, I need to know my own limitations, my own weaknesses. I need to know what an opponent's actually gonna try to do to capitalize on my weaknesses, and I need to know what theirs are. And you go out there, and even though you still know these things, you still can't win that much. It's kinda frustrating. And that coach will take you only so far. A coach can only take you so far. It's very difficult for a coach to take you beyond where they are or where they have been, even with their knowledge. So you get accustomed to that coach. You get accustomed to the way that coach teaches you. You get accustomed to the, to the rules. You pick up some muscle memory, and you probably max out on that coach at some point in time, and you realize, I need another coach. So you get another coach. You get a better coach, and that coach finds things in you the first coach didn't brings them out, and now you're really, really playing well. But you're not a Wimbledon champion. So you go out and you get a former Wimbledon champion to teach you to play tennis, to take you through the drills, to serve you the balls, to help you understand instinctually best they can when to rush the net, when not, what strategy to play with, not only the physical parts of the game, but the mental parts of the game, but you're, you're really, really starting to to reach the pinnacle of your potential. But you're, you're not yet Wimbledon material, I'm sorry. Not even close. So how in the world would you get to the point where you could actually win Wimbledon? Well, that's easy. It is possible. But what you'd have to do, because of your late start, Because of your level of ability, you'd have to find a Wimbledon champion who would come and get inside your body and play the match. And when you brought the rocket back, you were counting on that Wimbledon champion in you to hit it forward. You're counting on that champion to tell you when to rush the net, when to go back, when to lob, when to smash, when to wait. And, and tennis for you at that particular point of time was not about knowledge, wasn't really about ability. What, is, what it was really about is your ability to yield to the champion that is playing inside of you. That's the only hope you got. If you can learn how to yield and surrender and abandon yourself, and be the vessel by which that champion inside of you is playing his or her game, you've got a shot. And that's what Christianity is and is not in our culture. And it either is or it is not in your life and mine. There are those who spend a great deal of time A great deal of time understanding the history of the faith, the history of the religion, the inception of Judaism, the transfer of Judaism to Christianity, the historicity of Christ, the science of it, the apologetics of it. They can answer any and every question you want answered, but it doesn't ensure them when they go out there and they sit down with somebody, that it's not just them ministering to someone else. Because the Wimbledon champion, the spirit of the living God, isn't allowed to operate within them. They're not surrendering to, they're not surrendering to the acuity, the acumen of the spirit of God. There's not, it's them. Still them. And we've had coaches along the way, we call them pastors. And I find this to be a huge, huge challenge in in the church today. We have sat under teachers. Godly teachers who have taught us and taught us and taught us and taught us the same thing so often we could actually recite back to them what they're going to say before they say it. And we've, we've uh, amassed a body of knowledge from that coach that is in keeping with the context in which that coach taught and preached be it a denomination or a, or a, or a church itself And we have yet to explore the things beyond that coach. We've yet to explore the things of the Bible beyond that coach, beyond that doctrine that's still good doctrine. And we found ourselves with this limited reservoir of knowledge and understanding. And we think we have the full understanding of the goodness and the full counsel of God, but we don't. And what happens is we live our lives According to that body and reservoir of teaching and insight and wisdom, none of it is wrong, but it's not complete. So we find ourselves adverse to anything beyond that reservoir of knowledge. We, we're afraid of it because we've never heard it before. We, we, we don't know. We, we step back. And a tool is being given us to take us from that coach to another coach, but we reject it or we don't embrace it because, frankly, it's different. It's not wrong. It's biblical, but it's different. Now, for somebody who spent 30 years teaching people from 30 different denominations, I kind of know what I'm talking about. I have preaching clinics with young men who came up in the same context. The good news is it was good teaching. It was consistent. It, was, um, it got them the firm foundation. It, 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 it put a passion for Christ in them. But the split second you step outside the norm of mimicking the temp teacher, it's a real problem. It's a real challenge, and I I think the, the early disciples do that too. I think they had their teacher, and they were accustomed to what he taught. But he didn't stop teaching after his ascension. He continued, and it took them a while to figure things out. It took the whole church a while to figure things out that the Gentiles were actually included They had to wrestle with what are we gonna do with circumcision? What are we gonna do with Gentiles? What are we gonna do with Pentecost? What are we going to do with these things? And it it caused a a hiccup of sorts that we still haven't got accustomed to even 2,000 years later. So we want to be the best disciple we could be, but we we're going to be limited in that if it's just one teacher after another teacher after another teacher. Somehow or another, we have to figure out what does it look like to live and play the game where the actual champion is inside of you. That's what it's about. And that may be foreign to your vernacular, but that doesn't make it wrong. doesn't make it right either until you get in the book. So that's how you become a champion. I have exercises I do with guys who want to, they tell me they want to preach, and I'll throw a verse out at them. I said, all right, take 30 seconds, look at it, then just start preaching. Five minutes later, they're reciting back to me what their pastor for 20 years has taught him about that verse and it's 100% correct but it's 100% limited where is um, where is the other half of that verse where is the other insight where is the ever evolving changing understanding of the truth Where is it where you tell me something I've never understood or have always questioned or never heard before? Not just for diversity's sake, for completeness of truth's sake. Along the lines of the bomb I dropped on you the other day, which basically said, if you really want to be masculine, you're gonna have to get in touch with some of your feminine qualities. That's crazy, but it's in the Bible. You see, Different coaches will at different times give you different truth. It's all truth, but we have to learn how to use it. If we don't learn how to use it, then the world that needs us to figure it out goes without. There are likely, and I'm being gracious here, less than 10 evangelists in this church I mean, when it comes right down to it. Maybe less than 10, maybe seven. I think I know who they are, most of them. They are the people that when prompted would share the gospel with someone. They wouldn't shy away, they wouldn't back down. They wouldn't feel inept, they wouldn't be afraid. Now if that is actually statistically anywhere close to accurate, guess what? When you multiply billions of Christians around the world, well, let's not say that internationally, let's just say in the United States, because Christians around the world aren't that way. We are. And we need to own that. We have a real problem on our hands because we want to change a culture we know is hurting, but we're not really willing to do so. We're staying in a lane. We're staying in a, in a procedure. We're staying in a regulation. We're staying in an organized regimen of rules and regulations on how to go about doing something. And <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I'm just sitting with this young man having lunch, and he's asking me, okay, I just I really have a lot of questions about Christ, and would you just answer them? I said, yeah, I, I probably have a lot of the answers, frankly, because there's, I mean, it's really not that difficult. It's not that I'm special. I mean, it's just that I just know the answers. But at the end of the conversation, I said, you're, you're dead on, man. You're, you're dead on. You're right where you need to be. It's okay to need answers to these questions. But at the end of the day, I need to tell you something. And this is the most important thing I'm going to tell you during this lunch. You're studying and trying to interview interrogate, evaluate a religion at the expense of the person at the center of it all. Your sophistication is warranted because you don't want to make a poor decision about how to live the rest of your life. Good for you. But when you're Pursuing with all the sophistication of all the answers you need, don't forget this. Try to get yourself back to when you were nine years old. You didn't understand every word spoken. Vocabulary was a lot less. Maybe you didn't even read that well. That's to whom most of the New Testament was written. Open up that nine-year-old heart and ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. Ask him. Tell him, I want to believe, but I don't yet. I want your love, but I'm not there yet. Ask him to close the gap, not with information, but with habitation. 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 Be still and listen to the Father's voice. I have three questions for you. What expectation do you have for yourself individually this week as it pertains to Encountering, let me say it again, encountering Christ. What expectation, if any, do you have for this week, between now and the next time we meet, to encounter Christ, to hear his voice, to feel his love? to bask in his presence. Is that even, listen, is that even on our radar? Or are we seeking to, wherever possible, amass some information about the size of the court and the rules and the regulations at the expense of the voice of the Father? I wrote that devotion in the back of the room. My goal was to have absolutely no information whatsoever about Christianity. And everything possible chock full in there about spending time with, being in in a personal encounter with the spirit of the living God. Those are two different dynamics. One you might win a game or two you'll never win a you might win a set you'll never win a match the knowledge of the scripture there's enough of it here to teach the whole entire globe the gospel of Christ and the new testament you've heard it so many times many of you in so many different ways, the question is not whether or not you can substantiate the religion. The question is, do you encounter the epicenter of the belief, Christ himself? Said another way, do you need to touch his side this week? Do you need to touch his side to believe? How personal is your game? Is he in the spectator section or is he inside of you? Is he watching you play or is he playing and you happen to be watching him? He says that we would do greater works than he. Think about that. Come on, think about that. The only way we do greater works than he is if he does the works within us. I'm sorry, I pretty much know myself pretty well. I know that when our dog got lost, I was conflicted. I also know the Spirit of God was not. What is this? I'm not in any way, shape, or form down on the questions this man asked me over lunch. at all, not not even close. Don't think that. But he wants to know about a religion. In fact, he's investigated other religions. He wants to know about a religion. I want to know. Him. I want him to know about a savior. Those friends are two different things. Other religions validate our savior. I don't need another religion. I need my savior. I need him. I need him. I need them here, I need them here, I need them here. I need to be a vessel we just sang about. I don't need to learn about vessels, I need to be one. I don't need to learn about Pentecost, I need to experience it. I don't. I don't need to know about the gifts, I need to be gifted. For my own enjoyment? No, for a lost and dying world. These are two different things. What are each of us as individuals giving the Holy Spirit to work with this week? I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. I'm 60 years old, soon to be 61. My goal is to be nine. A child Ish, childlike. I want to be nine. I want to be 10. I want to be the kid who got up in the morning, in the middle of the summer, whose all the other friends were getting up. I want to sit behind three boxes of cereal, and I want to eat and get the prize out of the bottom and go out and live an adventure like nobody ever thought possible. I want to get on my bike with my friends and I want to ride through the town. I want to go to every store. I want to have fun. I want to play hide and seek. I want to do all of those things in Christ. I don't need a religion. I don't need to be more sophisticated and I don't need to be more eloquent. I don't know about you. I need to be nine, 10, or 11. When I didn't question everything, when I did what I was told, when I was obedient out of love for my parents, what I didn't have, when I didn't talk back, what I didn't have all the answers, I had more questions, I want to be 9, 10, 11. I want to be in fourth or fifth grade. I don't want my faith to be a hobby or a project or something I'm learning about and growing in knowledge of and I don't have to touch his side anymore, and I don't have to question whether he's there anymore. I already know he is. The question isn't whether he's there, the question is, I'm, am I there? Am I? There's a movie, Most some of you have probably seen it, it's called Finding Forrester. I have this dream, and it's a big one, okay? Big guy, big dream. I actually want to learn how to write. Why, I don't know. I couldn't stand writing in school. I never wanted to write a thing. Not even my name on a paper. Well, Sean Connery plays a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist. He only wrote one novel in his life. And he, he meets this kid who lives in the, in the hood who's a gifted writer. And the kid doesn't really fully know it yet so they form this friendship Sean Connery pulls out his typewriter and puts it in front of him he puts a typewriter in front of the kid who's 16 and he goes now we start writing he starts hitting the keys and the kid looks at him and goes what do you mean we're writing what are we writing about oh that doesn't matter we don't use our head right now or think we just write we think later Pulled out a sheet that he had typed. The kid looked at it and read it and go, oh my goodness, this is unbelievable. Just write. Just write. Go live your life and just just write. Express. Love. You know, all of the questions people want answered about this religion, you know the questions they never ask? Hope. Wisdom. Discernment. Passion. Zealousness. Fervency devotedness. They never ask about the presence of God, shaking in the presence of God. They never ask about encountering God because it never dawned on them that that could actually be the possibility. That is the main thing here. That is the main thing. But in the absence of the main thing, we've made knowledge more important. If I hear someone say, scholar, one more time, I'm going to vomit. I don't need a scholar. Do you need a scholar to tell me what I need to believe? I've seen the Lord snatch my son from the jaws of death within hours at age three. I've almost died multiple times. I've seen tens of thousands of people come to Christ in one evening. I've seen the miraculous take place. I've seen in my own life... A total rechanged transformation to who I used to be. What do I need a scholar for? Like I'll 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 hear what a scholar has to say every now and again, but I don't need it. Do you? I don't need an intellectualism. I don't need an explanation why I should believe what I. I need to put my faith in action. That lady over there who came here and we prayed for her back. I found out the other day it's still healed. That's what I need. I don't need anybody to explain it to me nor do I need to tell someone to tell me God doesn't heal anymore. I don't need that. I don't need to waste my time with that. I need to be still and hear the voice of the Father and I need to be nine. I don't know about you. But if I heard a pastor say that from a pulpit, some people would get concerned. I don't need anything. With all due respect, I don't need anything that says, this is who we are, and we identify ourselves, not anyone else saying this about us, we identify ourselves, no disrespect, as the chosen frozen. What kind of self-promotion is that? Think about what you just said. That is so contrary to the Bible. These people were passionately living out their faith at risk of death. Don't call yourself a chosen frozen. That's as far from where you wanna be as possible. Think about it. It's as if. We actually live as though he hasn't resurrected. Because if he hasn't resurrected, we wouldn't hear from each other. He couldn't hear me and I couldn't hear him. He couldn't lead me and I couldn't follow him. In a way, we're living as though he didn't rise from the dead. It's amazing. I want the spirit of God to pray through me. You don't, I don't question my faith when, when someone comes down to this altar and I embrace them after them receiving Christ. I see them sitting in that chair right there, totally different than they used to be. Christianity is about so many things, but it's not just the amassing of knowledge. It's about baking a casserole for a grieving widower. But checking on someone in a snowstorm that they got their prescription filled. It's kindness and gentleness, sacrifice, and it's evangelistic. Two times in my life, I've, two times in my life, I've whispered into a, the ear of a dying woman. And I consider those two moments One of the most special in my entire life. I don't need to know about the the starlight, dissipation of starlight measured over time. But I guess some people do, and that's okay. I don't need to memorize scripture as much as I need to eat it so that I can live another day. There's nothing like looking to, into the eyes of a lost person being found. And if I could have hung out with anybody besides Jesus, it would have been Saul of Tarsus. That would have been hilarious watching this man change of 180 and confuse his own self, his own being, with his knowledge. I'm gonna baptize somebody named Christopher Burnett in a few minutes. I'm told he understands what he's doing and I'm told that he understands the implications. I hope he does. I don't want him to miss one single second being a kid who's nine years old, listening to the voice of the father and doing exactly what he tells him to do. Keep taking this one more level and whatever level you're at, Don't try to go three levels ahead. Go to the next one, and then go to the next one, and then go to the next one. But let's all arrive before we go home to be with the Lord. Like that little infant who had more figured out than most Christians do today. She knew when to stop, listen, open her eyes, and receive love, at least the way way it looked. Who am I to say? So, as our worship team comes forward, this message I had to get out of me because I just want to encourage you to lighten up a little bit. Get a little younger. And in so doing, you might find yourself a little wiser. Enjoy your faith, enjoy your Lord. And expect to encounter him on a daily basis and be disappointed if you don't. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't need to stand in a pulpit. You're royalty as it is and you have access to the royal courts of the king. You have full access to the throne of grace. Some of you are doing some of the most incredible things for ministries around the world and others of you are looking for something to do for someone else and my prayer is God helps you find it because you have what you need to be who God's called you to be. You understand how the game is played, but you're more than that. You're a player. You're a player. Just let him in. Let him in. Amen. (laughs) Amen.